What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, November 19th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Matty, I have been better, my dude. Um, I have a canker sore that is absolutely throbbing in my mouth, and I don't know what to do. I've tried pretty much everything. We uh, we refuse to put you on the injured list. You're playing through this game, canker sore and all. This is my Michael <laughs> Jordan flu game, um, and I'm under the impression that you're also, you got something going on. Yeah, this is also my Michael Jordan flu game. <laughs> I have a cold. I'm a little congested. I'm stuffed up, but hey, you know, great weekend for me leading up to getting this cold. I went to Lambeau Field for the first time. I saw my Packers shut out the Seahawks 17 nothing. And got back Monday night, slept blissfully, woke up Tuesday morning and bought one share of the Green Bay Packers. So you guys are now listening to a part owner of the Green Bay Packers. Wow. Absolutely <laughs> massive. Yeah. And anyone that knows you, Matt, knows how much of a a trip to the Mecca it was for you. Like that, this was a pilgrimage for you. Yeah, this was big. This was big, man. I, um... <laughs> I, I, I do, in fact, love my Green Bay Packers. We got to get you out to Soldier Field soon. I know. Seriously. I'm, I've been dying to go. I've been trying to make a trip out of it uh, one of these weekends. But yeah, we'll, we'll expense it to uh, the TPT account somehow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nikki, let's podcast. planet today here on tpt we cover the latest in climate change wildlife conservation renewable energy and environmental policy all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time this show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics tpt has a little bit for everyone so we are happy to have you as a listener Before we kick things off, if you haven't already, please leave us a review for the show on Apple Podcasts to help us get some more visibility. Even if it's something you've already done, it helps us a lot, and we really appreciate it. Yes, please review, 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 and then subscribe and unsubscribe, and then resubscribe again. (laughs) All right, let's get into our, our quick hits here. So our first quick hit comes from The Guardian. And it's titled, Youth Activists Petition UN to Declare System-Wide Climate Emergency by Miranda Bryant. Yeah, before we get into our COP26 breakdown, we wanted to touch on something that we mentioned in passing a little bit last week, which is youth leadership. Greta Thunberg and other youth climate activists began filing a legal petition in the final days of COP26 to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to declare a system-wide climate emergency. Guterres does have emergency powers through his position that can be used to call climate change a level three global emergency, which is the same level emergency that the COVID-19 pandemic was classified as last year. The hope is that an emergency declaration of climate change would force resources and expertise into countries that are currently the most at risk from its impacts. 
And that would include supporting adaptation strategies, further analysis of climate science, and a public health response. So Scott Gilmore, a human rights lawyer, said an emergency declaration could also establish a special position, such as a climate czar or something similar, to coordinate efforts across different United Nations agencies. This is similar to how the World Health Organization led the COVID response with organizational and infrastructure help from the UN, and that could be applied to the climate emergency. Yeah, definitely. And it just is, I mean, we were talking about it last week with, um, when we had Giselle on, but it is so awesome. And I think you said inspiring, that's really the word for it, for the work that these, you know, young activists are, are taking and, and they're not waiting, you know, they're, they're taking the action in their own hand and, and putting the pressure on our leaders and the people in charge in order to enact real change. Yeah, it's, it's truly awesome. And I know that I use that word pretty liberally, but this is one of those things that's actually awesome to see the young people leading this movement. I mean, when we were 17, we were playing Xbox and eating pizza on Fridays and (laughs) Greta is like 17 and striking for striking from school for climate change for the past several years. So yeah, it's, it's awesome to see this and, you know, really makes me hopeful for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. I feel like we're, we're in good hands. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. All right, let's move on to the next one here. So next up from the New York Times, timber poachers set a forest on fire. Tree DNA sent one to prison by Vimal Patel. I am pretty sure my sister sent me this one. So if so, thank you, Jules. If not, um, yeah, you're getting credit for this one. Thank you, Jules. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is a really interesting story coming out of Olympic National Forest in Washington State, where poachers had been chopping down trees at night. That way they couldn't get caught logging, which is banned throughout the National Forest. And on October 3rd, 2018, a group of poachers found a wasp's nest and they sprayed it with insecticide and gasoline and then they lit it on fire. And then once they realized they couldn't put the fire out, they just kind of ran off. And that fire was named the Maple Fire, and it ended up burning 3,300 acres and caused about $4.2 million in damages. So here's where the story gets really interesting for me and kind of takes that turn away from just infuriating to infuriating but has a cool outcome. Last week, Justin Andrew Wilk who was the leader of the illegal logging operation, was sentenced to 20 months in federal prison for conspiracy, theft of public property, trafficking in illegally harvested timber, and other charges. The case is of note because it's the first time that tree DNA was used as evidence in a federal crime, which is something that researchers are hoping will lead to less tree poaching in the future. Specifically, trees with a large DNA database can deter poachers. So tree DNA was used to identify the lumber sold by Wilk as three poached maple trees that investigators actually found near the fire. So along with prison time, Wilk is going to have to forfeit proceeds from the tree poaching, and he's also going to have to pay restitution to the U.S. Forest Service. So special shout out to the researchers who built a database and ended up sampling 230 trees within Olympic National Forest before finding the match here. Really cool stuff. Yeah. And I don't want to use bad language. That's not something I do on this show. Just kidding. But (laughs) this guy is a complete scumbag. Like, I'm sorry. He's just a dirtbag. And uh, I was reading in the article, they were talking about the type of wood that he was, he was taking the maple trees and that it's used in, um, you know, making of musical instruments. So violins, guitars, and, and other such things. And that cuts 
a really, really harsh chord with me. So, um, yeah, I don't appreciate this guy one bit. Yeah, he also was adamant that he didn't do it despite the DNA match. So, I mean, we're not talking about uh, the the model citizens here. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. So, personally, I didn't even realize that trees had individual DNA. So, that was kind of eye-opening for me. And the author also mentioned how trees get genetic material from their mom and their dad. So, uh, trees, just like us. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> a tree could have a mom and a dad. I always thought that that was like, kind of a joke. Do they raise their son next to them? Is that, that's just, what? Well, it's uh, it's like cross-pollination, the way that all works. But I, I don't know. I always thought that like the the mom and dad phrase was kind of a joke, but I guess they actually pull genetic material. It's not just a, you know, 50-50 split for cross-breed, <laughs> uh, cross-pollinization. So yeah. Yeah. This was something I knew nothing about and, uh, Found it cool. Yeah, super cool. Trees have dads and moms. <laughs> All right, so moving on to our next quick hit. It is from Amy Cheng of the Washington Post, and she writes, London's River Thames, now home to sharks, seals, and seahorses, is no longer biologically dead. Yeah, great news from across the pond. Roughly 60 years after parts of the River Thames were declared biologically dead, the Zoological Society of London announced last week that cleanup efforts over the past few decades have been successful enough where chemicals are down and salt marshes are healthy, which has a really large impact on birds and fish in the area. The Thames is facing rising water temperatures and sea level rise due to climate change, which can upset the river's ecosystem in the future. But for now, this is a solid recovery for one of the most well-known rivers in the world. Much of London's drinking water comes from the river, which became heavily polluted thanks to toxic runoff in the Industrial Revolution. And when parts of the river were declared biologically dead, officials began investing in better wastewater management systems, and they also started monitoring its environmental health overall. So some bad news, the Thames has one of the higher concentrations of microplastics of any river in the world, which can still pose a threat to animals that ingest those microplastics, and microplastics get into the waterway by plastic pollution breaking down, degrading, and eventually traveling from rivers out to the oceans. So it's kind of a compounding problem that's just going to continue to get worse until we address the the plastic problem we have as well. Yeah, the bigger issue of recycling. Um, yeah, and something I found interesting in the article was uh, even in 1959, oxygen levels in the Thames had dropped so low that the British Natural History Museum declared it biologically incapable of sustaining marine life. And around this time, authorities began investing in better sewage treatment facilities and better monitoring key environmental indicators, sparking a complete turnaround. So 1959, the, the year that everything changed. Yeah, and here we are some 60, 60 odd years later and some progress. That's good news. Yeah, huge. I mean, I feel like when <laughs> sharks come into an area, it's like, okay, we're good now. Yeah, this is, again, my, my dumb brain just peeking through, but when I read the headline even and just saw like sea lions and seahorses, I was like, no way do they have seahorses <laughs> in London. That's sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seems impossible. Yeah, but here we are. Who would have thought? Not me. Hey, trees, trees have moms <laughs> and dads, okay? Anything is possible. And London has seahorses. <laughs> <laughs> what a crazy year it's been. All right, let's get on to our last quick hit of the week. And it's actually a group of articles from the New York Times titled, Here's What Happened on the Final Day of the COP26 Climate Talks. 
The link in our show notes is going to take you to a heading with a bunch of different excerpts and links to articles. So Nick and I are going to try to recap as much as we can here, but definitely check out that link if you want to read some more in-depth coverage about any of the things that we bring up. So let's start with some good news. The agreement at COP26, which included leaders and delegates from almost 200 countries, aimed at strengthening the push to fight climate change. There was a group consensus that each country needed to do much more right away. And the plan outlined the steps that should be taken to curb global warming, including cutting CO2 emissions in half by 2030 and curbing methane. It also set up rules on how to hold countries accountable for their progress or lack thereof. The United States and China agreed to do more to cut emissions this decade, including cutting methane. And that's huge because these are the world's two biggest polluters coming together. So we can't really rule out how significant that is. Leaders of over 100 countries agreed to end deforestation by 2030, and those countries actually make up 85% of the world's forests. More than 100 countries agreed to cut methane by 30% by 2030, and we mentioned this last week, but methane is more potent than CO2, so this is another big deal. And finally, India set a net zero plan by 2070 and said it would have half of its energy from renewables by 2030. Yeah, and it was it was really good to see, like you said, the U.S. and China agreeing to, to cut emissions in this decade. Um, you need to start with the, the two biggest powerhouses, kind of, and, and they need to set the example for the rest of these countries to, to follow suit. Yeah, there was definitely some good to come out of this, but you know, we also have to cover the not so good stuff. So let's move on to that. The actual plan itself that was agreed upon is to come back next year with stronger plans to curb emissions, including urging wealthy nations to quote, at least double funding for vulnerable nations. So my, my question here is like, were they not prepared or, or what was going on? Because you had time and this was being hyped up as like our last best chance. Yeah. And the agreement is just, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with it next year. Like, will we? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, like time is running out to address climate change successfully. It's not like one year is going to ruin our chances of reaching 1.5 degrees, but it makes it a lot harder than if we were to start today, tomorrow, next week. So yeah, it was frustrating. And it's also pretty frustrating that the first week had all those flashy speeches that we covered. And, you know, we can now look at those and say there wasn't really a plan to back up those words, which is one of the things that Nick, we talked about. We were saying like, you know, I hope that it's not just flashy speeches. Well, that's what it kind of turned out to be. Yeah, we were exactly right. Like everyone was playing their political hand and saying, hey, I'm on a big stage and I'm going to say something big and hopefully make some news. And, and that was it. That's all that really, it was very, it was lacking substance. Yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah. And, and I don't want to be right about this. Like I was hoping that we kept saying, like, I hope something good comes out of this. I hope we have this. And we were like, yeah, but we also do need to be weary about like, it could happen this way. And unfortunately it was kind of just like Greta said, a lot of blah, blah, blah. Like it, it's hard to disagree with her sentiment now. And the agreement on its own isn't going to solve climate change. And I, I feel personally that it leaves us with a lot more questions than answers. So I'm happy to see cooperation, but like there's nothing stopping the parties involved from saying, hey, 
you have six weeks to come up with your country's plan. Let's have this done before 2022 begins. And if we have to update anything, we can do that. But like, why are we waiting a year? Yeah. And what I don't understand is, you know, talking about this year, you had so much time and and so much, you know, uh, pumping up, you know, to come up with a detailed plan and, you know, bring all of your best minds from your country together and come up with a real obtainable goal for our planet's future and then come up with specifics on what your country can do to contribute. And I don't feel like any of that really happened. Yeah. I mean, we had a couple things like, look, India's plan is more than they had last year. It's more than a lot of people expected. China and the U.S. agreeing to work together is more than people expected. But how low is our bar here that we're impressed by that? <laughs> like, yeah, but like any action at this point is like, wow, yeah, you did it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so some other things that we should bring up. China agreed to phase down coal starting in 2026, but they didn't say by how much or over how long of a period of time. And the final agreement used the phrase phase down unabated coal, which was a phrasing suggested by India. And I know some people are saying, OK, why is phasing down coal like, why is that bad? So the original first draft actually said phase out coal and coal is the most harmful fossil fuel. So it makes sense that Switzerland's representative uh, Simonetta Samaruga was furious about the change from phase out to phase down. Yeah. And she was not alone there. Uh, Leaders from Mexico, the Marshall Islands and other countries backed her up when she said, we do not need to phase down, but to phase out. We are disappointed both about the process and the last minute change. This will not bring us closer to 1.5, but will make it more difficult to reach. Yeah, so it's a tough one because India wanted more support from industrialized nations. And instead of giving them that aid, it looks like the agreement was just like, hey, we're going to switch up the language. So, yeah, that's that's another frustrating thing that happened. So anyway, let's get back to some other stuff that we are not thrilled about. The final agreement doesn't address how much each nation should cut its emissions by or how quickly. So you look at countries like the U.S., Canada, Japan, and countries in Western Europe who have 12% of the world's population but have created 50% of the world's greenhouse gases. Like, they should probably cut more and cut faster. And also, I shouldn't have to use the word probably in our recap where we're talking about what was agreed upon. (laughs) There should be no like up in the airs, you know, there should be, there should be no loose ends. Yeah. I'm not happy here. And and the main disagreement here is that rich countries want developing nations to cut their use of coal and developing nations say that they lack the financial resources to do that and need help from the rich nations. And the thing is, I don't blame developing nations for being skeptical of aid from rich nations. A decade ago, rich nations promised to create a fund of about $100 billion per year in climate finance for developing nations, and they fell short by tens of billions of dollars per year. Yeah. And and on that same note, like there was a program I also wanted to bring up um, in the same article, and it was a United Nations climate agreement that uh, had its plans weakened, kind of same thing at the last second. Um, And it was specifically in reference to helping vulnerable nations cope with climate fuel disaster. And here's a quote from the article. The new text eliminates a reference to the creation of a facility that would have provided financial support for technical assistance to cope with losses and damages 
from ever fiercer storms, floods, and droughts brought about by greenhouse gas emissions that wealthy countries have spewed into the atmosphere for decades. So you can kind of think of this facility that they were talking about as almost like an international FEMA. So something that could kind of like pick up the pieces when disaster strikes and and give aid. And it would be massively helpful for like some of these impacted nations from climate change, but they completely wrote it out of the agreement. Yeah, and to add to that, I mean, all nations are going to be impacted by climate change. So sure, it's going to start helping out some of the smaller developing nations, but look, we're all going to benefit from this. And something that I'm sure it was written out for was because of the cost. And I don't know how many times, you know, we have to make this point and climate scientists have to make this point and economists have to make this point. But the cost of inaction is going to be so much higher than whatever number they were worried about in this agreement. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about this ad nauseum, you know, on this show. And it always comes down to that same thing. Yeah. And another thing we should touch on, This was another conference with mostly old men with power there to make decisions and then young women leading the charges on the outside. Yeah. So one of the advisors to Pakistan's prime minister, Malik Amin Aslam, said with an average age of 60, I don't think anyone in the negotiating room would live to experience net zero in 2070, referring to India's pledge. Yeah. Nothing to add there. Uh, If you're curious why that's important scroll back like 10 minutes where we talked about the youth being inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Last thing I want to talk about is the carbon footprint of COP26 itself. COP26 created twice as many emissions as the previous conference held in Brazil in 2019. And it generated roughly 102,500 tons of CO2. 60% of those emissions come from international flights, and other large portions of the emissions come from accommodations, policing, local transportation, and energy for the actual venue where the meeting was held. Vanessa Nakate, who we mentioned last week, is a Ugandan climate activist who called out business leaders and investors for flying into COP26 on private jets just to make fancy speeches. And it doesn't have to be this way. Peru offset all of the emissions for COP20 when Lima hosted the conference in 2014. And some activists say that reducing emissions doesn't even really matter. Like, it's not even the most important thing. Instead, it's phasing out fossil fuels so that we don't need these type of conferences. Yeah, it's a chicken or the egg situation. Like, if we can get rid of fossil fuels, we won't need to have these these conferences. We don't need to have, you know, these people fly in just to say big words and then leave and not actually do anything about it. Um, but further their own political campaign. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know how far off we are on this, but who knows? Maybe at COP31, we're looking at like electric jets flying people in that have no emissions. But that's a question for someone much smarter than either of us. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) All right, Nick, what do you say we uh, take a break? I say we do it, Maddie. I say we do it. I'm going to get too fired up if we keep talking about this. (laughs) All right, when we get back, my interview with Keith Hutchings of the Comfortable Home Project, and we're going to learn about passive solar homes. Yeah, Matt, so I was actually at a wedding this weekend, and um, if you can believe it, the fire alarm went off during the wedding. 
Were your dance moves just like way too hot? Matt, you know how I get. I like to move. I like to groove. But yeah, <laughs> so it was right after the cocktail hour and, or actually, sorry, it was actually during the cocktail hour and we were forced to go outside in about 30 degree temperatures for about 40 minutes. And you know who never left my side the entirety of that time? Was it your Vala Alta everyday handkerchief? Matt, I was using the thing every five minutes. Had it in my blazer pocket, would pull it out, <laughs> sniffle, boom, right back in. Sniffle, boom, right back in. It was, it was clockwork. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. You never know when the fire alarm is going to go off at the wedding that you're at and it's 30 degree temperatures and you don't have an Alta on you. What are you going to do? Cover up those sniffles with your Valaalta. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And now here's Matt's interview with Keith Hutchings. If you want to hear more from Keith or about the Comfortable Home Project, check out the links in our show notes. Today on TPT, we are joined by Keith Hutchings. He is the founder of the Comfortable Home Project, which is an organization that shares the stories of Aussies living in passive solar homes in the hope of promoting sustainable and climate appropriate housing based out of Perth, Australia. Keith, welcome to the planet today. Hello, Matt. Yeah, this is this is exciting. Uh, conversations from the other side of the world. So, this is uh, my my first international guest. So, it's kind of funny. We were talking beforehand about how you grew up in New Jersey, so actually not too far from me. And here you are checking in all the way from Australia. Yes, yes. I I did move to the exact opposite side of the world. So, uh, yes, Perth is as far away as you can get from New York and New Jersey without actually coming back around the other side and getting closer again. So, so what brought you uh, from New Jersey to Perth? And I guess how how long have you been there? I've lived here for uh, just over thirty years now. So I am now. Last year, I think I passed the point where I have now lived here longer than I lived there because um, I was 28 when I moved out here. I was living in New York City and a couple of things happened at the time which made me realize it was not a place to grow old and it was not a place to raise children. And I was working as a freelance theater tech. There's not much theater happening in New York City during the summer, so I would spend my summers traveling, and I was I was literally shopping for a home, and so I just I went to places, and then I just kept meeting Australian, well, mostly Australian women, and falling in love, and so I thought I think I'll travel there because every 
Australian woman I've met has been absolutely gorgeous. Of course, they spurned my love because I was kind of a train wreck at the time. But so that was a good decision on their part. But, you know, I spent a couple of years getting my shit together. And then I, oops, there's one. And then I <laughs> moved out here. Uh, I, I was traveling out here and I met the woman who became my wife. I was, you know. There's that phrase that people say, oh, I met my wife. But I, I always have to correct that because here in Perth, after the Second World War, they, the Italians had these arranged marriages where the family would arrange a marriage. You know, the, the man would come out and would get himself established with a job and everything. And then he would write to the family and they would find a suitable girl and the first time he would see her was when she was walking down the gangplank. Uh, and they were married. Uh, so that was, that was meeting my wife. So I say the woman who became my wife. Important distinction. Awesome. So what first got you interested in the environment and sustainability as a whole? Well, so... As part of when I was initially traveling around, I met a bunch of people here in Australia who were working on protecting the old growth forests in the southwest of WA. The southwest here is one of the biodiversity hotspots. It also has these massive trees, which um, they were chopping down and making into wood chips to make fast, flashy magazines. So some people were working on that. I saw what they were doing and I saw the forests and I said, this is a good thing. But I quickly realized that I couldn't do the kind of chain yourself to trees kind of protesting because I slip into despair quite easily. Like any environmentalist. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I guess some of them can handle it. But I just saw that I couldn't handle that ongoing, we've won this one, oh, but there's a new one that happens consistently. And then I also saw that there were a whole bunch of environmentalists who were their own worst enemies. Their way of, you know, they, they were so angry. They had so many emotional issues. That, you know, there was often this, you know, crazy conflict within organizations because people didn't know how to communicate with each other. So I got involved with a, a peer counseling group because I felt my contribution to sustainability would be to lead a group where we started working on getting people less crazy um, so that they could function more effectively in, in what they were trying to do. Uh, and I did that, you know, well, I continue to be involved with that organization. Um, then I got involved with a school. I actually became the maintenance person for a school up here. And we moved up from down south a little town called Denmark up to Perth and I got involved with a school I similarly said the adults are mostly a train wreck let's get involved with education where we you know I can do my part to bring up these young people in a way that makes them the effective leaders of the future 
And so I did that for another decade. Awesome. Yeah. And I see that now with the young people that I used to be working with at the school that they're, you know, they're amazing. Uh, I get really grumpy when I hear these kind of, you know, kids today, because it's like, yeah, no, they're doing so much better. But I, you know, I had this very select group in a small school that were, well, they were just remarkable. So, so then flash forward a bit uh, to founding the Comfortable Home Project. How did you take your experience before that and then your career as an educator and get involved and starting and running the Comfortable Home Project? So it's actually a really strange story. So I decided that my kind of place, I felt everybody needs to do something about climate change. My thing was going to be housing. I met up with an architect who had developed a project for building um, prefabricated houses that would be like a modular construction house for rural areas. And I was trying to get this project going and I couldn't get it moving. He was involved with a big project. I didn't have enough business experience and it just wasn't moving forward. And I thought, well, I don't have any actual credibility as somebody who can promote this because I've done other things all my life. So what I'm going to do is start developing this kind of credibility for myself by doing interviews with people who are living in passive solar houses. Because once you've been in a passive solar house, you really don't want to be anywhere else. And so I thought I'll start doing these interviews with people who are working in this area, just start educating people. I did this interview and oh my God, it was so terrible. I set up this, I set up a phone on a little tripod on a table and I didn't know how to do video editing. So we had to run through the thing from start to finish because I didn't know how to do it. So we went through it about six times. I didn't know, notice that there was a mirror behind us. And so I had the chandelier looking like a hat above me so i look like a space alien it's absolutely appalling um it's still on my facebook page if any of your listeners want to scroll down if if your listeners are thinking oh i couldn't make content because you know i don't have a film and television background go to my facebook page scroll absolutely to the bottom it won't take you that long and watch this video. It's only three minutes, so you'll spend longer scrolling. And then you will go, hmm. It sounds like an awesome start. Yeah, yeah. It's so terrible that I put it back up again. Um, <laughs> I leave it up as a sort of encouragement to others. Humble beginnings. So I put a post up on, uh, on a local Facebook group. I need a filmmaker. And I said, age doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. I just need somebody. And experience doesn't matter. I need somebody who wants to work with me. And this young woman, she was 17 at the time, contacted me and said, I want to be a filmmaker. I'll be a filmmaker. And, and we worked together for four years. Most of the videos on my website were made by Christina, which, which is just yeah, I was so lucky uh, to have found her. And we worked together 
for several years. And the project has kind of taken on a life of its own. You know, the production houses kind of just fell through, never went anywhere. And I've gotten to a point now where basically what we're running is a marketing agency without any clients, which is really strange. But I think houses account for 40 to 60 percent of global carbon emissions and we could build our houses so basically they have no energy expenses over the life of the home so i came to the conclusion this is the only thing that really makes sense so here i am i become a marketing guy (laughs) so how long ago was that that you started this that was now five years ago awesome that's really cool So just to take a step back for a quick second, you mentioned passive solar housing. So what is that for some of our listeners who might not have heard of the phrase before? Yeah, they haven't heard of it because we are so terrible. We as a as the people who are providing services to this end of the housing sector are mostly have done a terrible job of marketing. So you know, we're a secret business, basically. And I'm not just referring to me. I'm talking about this whole sustainable end of the housing sector. So what a passive solar house is, is the at its most basic, it's designing a house so that by design, it's warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And this is done by, in the winter, getting the sun into the house so... Here in the Southern Hemisphere, having your main living areas facing towards the north and getting that sunlight in. And then in the summer, it's the opposite. You want to keep the sun out of the house, so minimizing windows on the east and west so that low morning and afternoon sun aren't coming into the house. And then designing the house in a way that you can get the heat out. There are a lot of houses that I've been in where you just can't get the heat out of the house. So it it heats up in the summer and then it just stays hot all night. Um, This is principally done with mass. So in terms of keeping the heat or the cool into the house, um, you've got walls, floor that absorb the heat. There are other ways to do it, but, you know, I'm just keeping it simple for this. Then having windows, there's a thing you can do where in the direction, so here in Perth, the breeze in the summer, the prevailing wind comes out of the southwest. So you design your house so that on the side of the southwest, there are small windows. And then on the opposite side of the house you have big like sliding doors windows that can open and windows high on the walls to flush that heat through or you can do uh, you know like windows low on the on a wall and and then high on the wall so that you get that kind of convection where the cool outside air can come in and then be carried out through those windows high in the room Um, A lot of houses are built in. So there's a whole bunch of different ways. I'm not a building designer. I'm a kind of marketing guy. So, but, you know, the, what the end result is what I'm interested in, not the how. The end result is that you end up with a house 
which, if it's designed properly, will have minimal energy costs over the life of the home. That's so interesting. I, I never would have thought of just the way that you orient the windows and you know the size and spacing of them, how much of a difference that would make on the actual energy efficiency of the home. It makes me crazy because what I see driving around Perth and I was recently back in New Jersey visiting my father and what I was seeing was a lot of houses that are built perfectly backward. If you picked up the house, you know, you did one of you got your Amish friends over and you got a 150 people around the house and you did a 180 on it the house would be a perfect passive solar house. <laughs> so is the issue that we're prioritizing our views over our uh, energy efficiency? We need the vistas. <laughs> that can be the situation, but also because people just don't want to think about it. So some friends of mine were interested in a passive solar house and she had done a lot of research. She actually knows more about passive solar and passive solar design than I do because she's that kind of person who just goes down the rabbit hole. So they went out and they talked to builders and they looked at a design. They found this, it's an odd shaped block that they have and they found this design that fit on their weird block. And all they had to do was take the drawing and flip it over and they would have about an 80% passive solar house. But the builders, they don't care. It costs the same whether they build the house right side up or upside down. But it requires putting some thought in. And because people don't know that they can have this, because we've done a poor job of marketing, they're not asking for it. People are not saying, yeah, cool, but what are my energy costs going to be like? And so that's where what I've come into is consumer-led demand. So I want to educate people so that they... I have this vision for the future where a young couple walks into a display home and they look around and they go, yeah, yeah, it's cool, but, you know, it's a nice house. Is it eight stars? We have an energy rating here. Um, and it's, the building code requires six stars. That's the minimum. Um, and then you start going up seven and a half, eight, eight and a half. By the time you get to 10, it's basically a house that's fully self-sufficient. It needs no outside energy in order to operate. Cool. And, you know, so this young couple goes, yeah, cool. Is it eight stars? And the salesman goes, no, but it comes with. Blah, blah, blah. And then he looks around and he realizes that they've just walked out the door because they have no interest in a house where they will be doomed to a lifetime of high energy costs. Especially now with, you know, my generation and the generation after me, we care a lot more about sustainability and, you know, reducing our own personal footprint than some of the generations before us. So I don't think we're too far off from, you know, a, a couple going in and whether it's they're focused on energy bills or reducing their energy consumption, it seems like a passive solar home gives them the same result. So... Yeah, I don't think that's too crazy of an idea. Yeah, you know, because I'm I'm a marketing person, not a sustainability person, although I have no formal training in marketing. I have done, I tell people I've done a master's degree in marketing over the last four years by listening to podcasts. But the essential rules, yeah, I've got so many letters after, after my name, name because I take out my crayon and I write them on there. <laughs> whatever you got to do, right? Yeah, whatever you got to do, because 
we've been, you know, we've been waiting for the experts for 50 years to fix this. And, yeah, they don't seem to be interested in that. They're more interested in maintaining the status quo. So we have to become the experts and then just say, right, okay. Depends on who you look for, though, at the experts, right? I mean, we have so many awesome young leaders out there who aren't in position of power to make certain decisions. And then the decision makers aren't referring back to the experts. So it's tough. It's, a, it's an interesting situation there. Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's a funny thing to me. I see like on LinkedIn, people will say about Greta, you know, a personal hero there. They say, well, you know, why should we listen to this teenager? She's not a, she's not a climate scientist. And I just say, well, the climate scientists have been telling us for 50 years we need to do something about this. And you haven't listened to them. And what Greta is saying is, you should listen to the climate scientists. And you're saying, why would we listen to her? Tell us we should listen to the people we haven't listened to. Yeah. Because she's not a climate scientist who we haven't listened to. Did Did you follow follow that? that? A bit. <laughs> oh, no, I've done, done it wrong. I want to talk to you a bit about with the Comfortable Home Project. You had mentioned to me how part of that is getting young people involved and you know fostering growth for that, that next generation of leaders. Um, our, our listeners have heard me talk about it, but I used to work at the Bronx Zoo in New York where I did environmental education. So you know, getting young people involved and, and fostering growth for that next generation is something that I find really important. So I wanted to hear more about how your team works to inspire that next generation to get involved and and be those leaders in this space. Yeah, look, I don't feel that I need to inspire young people. They come already inspired. What I am trying to do... So I've, I've been working with a bunch of marketing students from a nearby university... Curtin University, and um, I was introduced to the leader of the president of the Curtin Marketing Association, and through her, I put an ad up on the Facebook page, the Curtin Marketing Association, and what I discovered is, first of all, that there's a whole bunch of young people who are really passionate about doing something about the environment. They want to take action on climate change. They don't know how. And some of them are like me. The idea of marching in the streets doesn't hold any attraction to them. You know, that's not to throw any shade towards the people who are marching in the street I'm like yeah that's great if that's your way of contributing to this then go for it and also there's a whole bunch of young people who they're studying but they're studying in marketing is like an esoteric thing it's like they're sitting around talking about they want to do marketing they don't want to talk about marketing and so they come to me through this Facebook and I'm like I want you to take responsibility. I want you to take charge for the Facebook page. So, you know, one young guy came to me and I said, so what do you want to do? He said, well, I want to learn, you know, SEO and Google Analytics. I said, cool. Do you want to take over our website? So he has completely rebuilt our website from the ground up. Before it was, ah, it was the flower of 1995. All right, last question for you. And then I want to get into something more fun than we do at the end of all of our interviews, but last serious one. Wait, more fun? This has been fun. Yeah. 
Well, it's going to get extra fun. (laughs) One of the things that you had mentioned to me that when we connected was how climate change isn't a science problem um, and that it's a marketing problem, which when you said that was a bit of an eye opener for me. And I would love it if you could break that down further for the listeners out there. Oh, God, yes. I love talking about this. We know how to solve climate change. It's really simple. Stop burning fossil fuels. That's, you know, (laughs) the way we've been talking about it, most of the people who are involved in climate change are talking about if we keep doing this, the world is going to end. And what people take from that, their human response is the basic response to panic, which is fight, flight, or freeze. You know, fight. Oh, that isn't really happening. That's just been made up to get greenies rich. All right, okay, yeah. (laughs) I don't know many of us out there who are rich. (laughs) Yeah, that's the funniest thing. Oh, scientists who are rich. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. Do you know many scientists? (laughs) Everyone's struggling to get grant funds and all that sort of stuff. It's it's so illogical. Yeah, yeah, get, yeah, all these scientists that I know that are flying, you know, flying around the world in their private jets. Yeah, not happening, you know, or flight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Climate change. Maybe I'll watch a few back episodes of Friends tonight. Yeah, because that sounds scary and I can't deal. Or, you know, freeze. Oh, yeah. We'll just keep doing what we've been doing because there's no hope. So, you know, that's the response to the... the We have... You know, we've been doing this for 50 years. We've been talking about how bad the situation is since the 1970s and basically no one has done anything but basic marketing 101 is two things it is talk about people's problems so people's problems are their houses are really expensive to live in to maintain at a comfortable temperature and they're making them sick Understand, and they're making their kids sick. Those are people's problems. They're not saying, oh, I want to do something about the environment. They're saying, I can't afford to live in my house. And basically, every other solution to climate change is a net gain for humanity. So talk about people's problems. And then the other basic marketing 101 is make your customers the hero of the story. And what we've been trying to do, the people talking about climate change, in a lot of ways is we're kind of trying to make ourselves the hero of the story. You must listen to me. You must do what I say. Never works. No one wants to listen to them. But if you say to people, you can make a difference for your family. You can make a difference for the people living in your city we make them the hero, we provide them solutions, make them the hero of the story, then they go, ooh, ooh, I like that. You know, basically what I've come to the conclusion is that if we do everything we know how to do about climate change, the future will be glorious. Yeah. So let's stop talking about the panic and start talking about how good things can be. You know, the biggest takeaway message for me with COVID was, other than that people are idiots, is was 
the the air in our cities the you know they've been telling us for 50 years oh yeah yeah the air is a lot better than you know cars don't emit nearly as much as they did before yeah okay half truth but true it's not as bad as it was but then suddenly there were no vehicles moving and the air suddenly was clear people were saying we can see the mountains from downtown for the first time in decades it was incredible and it's like oh yeah the air we're breathing is really really terrible and that is because of the internal combustion engine. It's right down to that. Let's get rid of that. And, you know, just as simple as, like, every week I go and I fill my van up. I'm a tradesman. I drive a van. And I spend 10 minutes standing in a cloud of a known cancerous agent. And I'm really looking forward to not doing that anymore. But, you know, I'm an environmentalist, so I don't have, uh, I have this crazy project that doesn't make me any money. So I, I don't know when I'll have the money to actually get rid of my van and not have to do that anymore. But yeah, life will be glorious. We'll get there. Yeah, that's the plan. Yes. <laughs> cool. Rapid fire questions. I am ready. Yeah, let's do it. All right, first one. What is your favorite animal? I'm going to have to say the kangaroo. They're just gorgeous. If you, you know, when all of your listeners, when we can fly again, they can get out to Australia and get out to some of the wildlife parks and places where you can see kangaroos. They're just amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they're they, super cool. <laughs> they are, and they are so cute. You'll look over and, you know, they've, we were up in the forest recently. Supposed to be rapid fire, but yeah. Uh, and and there are a bunch of moms with their joeys, and you'll see this little bump, and then all of a sudden it goes bloop, and the head pops out, and or they'll be out and about, and then they'll decide to go back into the pouch and they just kind of pop in and all you'll see is a tail sticking out it looks really weird it's like is that a thing i don't want to be seeing oh no it's a tail it's okay um just a tail yeah so okay next question all right what is something you do to try to be more sustainable in your own life i think the the biggest thing for us is eating uh vegetables that are grown organically and grown on small local farms. So we have a shop near us that buys locally as much as they possibly can. And so more of our shopping dollar goes to places like that. For a while, we were buying all of our veggies at a um, farm farmer's market. And again, that situation where we've minimized the travel and we're eating better. And, and part of eating organically for us is also that the farmers haven't been exposed to pesticides. So it's that kind of bigger picture thing. Awesome. All right, and last one. What is one environmental topic you think our listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Housing. Let's just say, because that, that's all I talk about is housing. So, But, you know, to me, it doesn't matter. It's 
what I'm seeing in talking to people, there's a whole bunch of people who will tell you, we need to do this one thing and then everything will be good. Like I'm obsessed with housing. So if we fixed housing around the world, it's not going to fix climate change. And what I realized is our entire society is built around two myths. It's the myth of cheap and abundant energy. And that energy was coming from fossil fuels. The reason why they were cheap was because the energy companies, the companies supplying this, were never required to pay for the externalities, what they are doing to our environment by their product. And then the abundant is, is another myth because they've been encouraging us mostly for shareholder value, to just burn it. And we've been acting like sailors on shore leave with this product for 120 years. And we've been pissing it up against the wall. And, you know, one of the comments that I keep hearing is, you can't live without oil. It does all these amazing things. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's a really lame argument. Because if it's so useful, we should stop burning it so that my great-grandchildren still have this product that does all these amazing things. So, because... We have other ways to make our cars go, but we don't have other ways to make, you know, plastics and specialty medical items and all this kind of stuff that they bring up as the reason why we can't. And I'm like, yeah, no, let's stop pissing it up against a wall and save it for that future generation that wants to have access to these products. And dominate it. <laughs> yes! You have my permission. If, if anybody, anybody on, you know, you know if, if your, your listeners, listeners are feeling, feeling like they, they need permission, permission they, they can, can contact me and I will write them a note. <laughs> I'm going to change the world because I have a note from Keith that says I can. Can I have one of those notes? You can. Yes, I will write you a note. I will get out my crayon and I will say, Matt has my permission to change the world. All right, I'm holding you to it. (laughs) I will write it and scan it. (laughs) All right, thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate you working through the time zone difference to make it happen, and I'm sure our listeners learned a lot from this. Yes, and I'll just say to people, anybody who is interested in what I've been talking about today, if you want to send me a connection request on LinkedIn, I accept connection requests from anyone who doesn't want to sell me Bitcoin or doesn't lead with, hi, dear, I will accept their connection request and we will have so much fun changing the world. So Awesome. Is there a place that our listeners can keep up with the Comfortable Home Project as well? Check out our website. They can listen to all the other podcasts that I've been a guest on. There's nine of them up there now. I've got another one to put up. We've got a Facebook page, which I've been really slack about getting stuff on. And we've got a YouTube channel with That's where the videos show up first. And I spend entirely too much time on LinkedIn. So those are the... So if if you like or exceedingly dislike the thinking that I've talked about today, come and join me on LinkedIn. 
we'll have fun. So, yeah. Awesome. Thanks again, Keith. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that. And thanks to your listeners. That was so much fun. And that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be giving an update on what's next for the planet today. It's going to be a very short episode just to give the listeners an update. That way we can enjoy the week off for Thanksgiving, spend some time with family. Yeah, definitely tune in, check it out, and get ready for some turkey, folks, one week. Until then, share the show with a friend or two who you think would like it. If you have any questions, comments, story recommendations, or potential guests, send those our way through our socials or through email. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you're able to. And we would also love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced every single week by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does all of our music. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. You can keep up with the entire TPT team on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Also, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving.